When people think about human trafficking under cover operations, many people think of movies like Taken where heavily armed law enforcement officers bust into seedy brothels to find women chained to beds. Now, of course, these situations can occur in many parts of the world, but there are actually undercover operations happening right here in the U.S that don't look like the movies. Something that is really important to understand about human trafficking undercover operations is that unless they are done really well by ethical law enforcement who have a deep understanding of human trafficking, take a victim-centered approach, and recognize the many layers of trauma that victims have gone through, they can actually be harmful to victims. You see, despite the exploitation and abuse many victims experience, many have formed trauma bonds with their traffickers and did not necessarily see getting out of the life as an option. Sometimes the reality you know, no matter how bad, seems better than that unknown reality especially when you've been made to believe that law enforcement will harm you, and especially if that has been reinforced on the streets. Hi, my name is Esther Gotch, and I'm the director of Coalition Builds for Truckers Against Trafficking, and I'll be your host for this episode of the Driving Freedom Podcast. In today's episode, we will learn about undercover operations, specifically at truck stops, and how to do those well. So for this conversation, we're gonna be hearing from my go-to expert on this topic, retired Sergeant Dan Nash. Dan is the co-founder of the Human Trafficking Training Center and a retired Missouri State Trooper, where he spent 27 years investigating vice crimes, violent crimes, and human trafficking. Dan was the sergeant of the Human Trafficking Unit and the enforcement supervisor of the Missouri Attorney General's Office Anti-Human Trafficking Task Force. He's instructed human trafficking training in numerous states for law enforcement, victim advocates, casinos, firefighters, hospitals, and nationwide nonprofits. Dan created the Special Victims Methodology for Investigating Human Trafficking Cases, which is being used by many law enforcement agencies and has been passionate about improving the anti-trafficking program within law enforcement and the community since 2012. Dan, we're thrilled to have you on today's podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be part of this podcast. This is going to be awesome. I can't wait. I'm very excited. Can you tell us how long you've been focused on human trafficking and working human trafficking cases? I started really developing an interest in human trafficking probably in about 2011. I was in violent crime at the time. You know, we were working violent crimes against victims that, that were out there on the streets. We had traffickers. We didn't really even call them traffickers necessarily at the time, but they were involved in violent crime. And that's kind of where my interest really started from. There was a particular incident that happened to me. I contacted this probably early 20s female and she was with this older male. and. I was thinking that there was probably something going on here. You know, I did exactly what I had been told and what had been trained in trying to investigate other types of crimes. You know, you separate the individuals, you're talking to them, you're asking them questions. And the more questions that I asked this particular person, the more angry she got at me and the more upset she was getting. And, and that kind of took me off guard because inside I'm thinking, man, I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to find out what's going on. Let me help you. But the more I pushed it, the more resistance I got from her. And after some period of time, I kind of just got frustrated. I wasn't getting anywhere with her, you know, released that contact and they went on their merry little way. And then probably a couple months later, I get a call from another law enforcement agency that says, hey, are you familiar with this young lady? And I said, yes, I am. 
And they're like, well, we found your business card in her purse. And we found her in one of these rent by the week hotels. She was dead. She was in the bathtub. She had slit both of her wrists. There was evidence where she had slit her wrist, you know, many times before. She had significant bruising all over her body. It was older bruising, meaning it was several days or maybe even a week or so old. And then on the lip of the bathtub, there was just one photo and it was a photo of a small little boy, probably one or two years old. And the officers said that they had tracked down this young lady's mother and had found out that she had been sexually abused as a child. That sent her down a path of, you know, having all kinds of behavioral issues, getting involved in drugs and alcohol, you know, running away from home several times. And eventually she left home and didn't come back when she was around 17. Um, and the mother said that she didn't really have any contact with her for a couple years. And then finally, social services ended up contacting her because her daughter had a son and um, the son had tested positive for, for narcotics when it was born. So social services took him from the mother and eventually placed him with grandmother. So she had had this grandson for the last couple of years. Obviously now she's committed suicide, obviously beat up probably by her trafficker. And I immediately felt like this sense of, gosh, what are we doing? What are we doing for these victims and with these victims? And I really felt that I completely let her down, that this was not necessarily my fault, but to some degree, maybe because I had this person right here in front of me. I probably had her trafficker right here in front of me and I just didn't know what to do with it. I did what I, I thought was best at the time, but I didn't know what to do. And even to this day, I still feel like I let her down. I never wanted to let someone else down like that, that you know somebody would take their life or somebody would overdose or somebody would be killed by a trafficker or all the other horrible things that happened to them. So I really just buckled down and said, okay, I've got to figure this stuff out, take whatever classes I need to take. I've got to do research and I've really got to try to figure this stuff out. So that's kind of where it all started for me. Wow. You know, I know from working with the trucking industry for all these years, you know, you're not alone in maybe having those brushes with victims and maybe turning the other way or moving on and thinking, well, I don't know what was going on, but I don't know what to do. I know I've heard from truck drivers who once they learn about human trafficking and about victims say, I've seen her and I, I didn't know what to do. And that's why now I'm going to do something, going to do the training. I'm going to make that call when I see somebody in trouble. So man, you know, but obviously it's shaped your work now long-term and set you on a trajectory for the last 20 plus years of really, like you said, digging in. So, you know, Dan, you and I met at a coalition build in Sedalia, Missouri in 2019, um, which was essentially a meeting designed to bring together the trucking bus and truck stop industries with law enforcement agencies like yourself who are working human trafficking. Can you tell us a little bit about what your role was with MSP at that point and how did that meeting and the connections made shift your focus at all towards the truck stops? So at that time, I was the sergeant in the newly formed human trafficking unit. So we were still trying to, to network and get our feet on the ground and, and build this program within the, the state patrol and within the attorney general's office through the human trafficking task force. And the biggest thing that I took from that entire coalition, which is something that you just can't put a price tag on, was the networking and the contacts that I made. Because from that coalition and the people that I met there, what we did in Missouri is we started actually going out to truck stops 
talking to every truck stop in the entire state, getting to meet them, talking to them, explaining to them about human trafficking. If they already did not have, you know, some training through Truckers Against Trafficking, we gave them different materials that we could provide to them. And most importantly, we actually put a name to a face. So I think it was really, really important to start developing those rapports and those face-to-face contacts so that they know who to call. They know what you're going to do when you show up. You know, the results were people started calling. People that we were not getting calls from previously started calling, started giving us information. That's great. I mean, that is exactly what we hope many law enforcement agencies will do, right? Is go build those relationships. So you you said, you know, once you did that, you did start receiving calls. Talk about what that impact was. I mean, were you getting actionable information that you guys could act on? And, you know, do you feel like once they made those calls, they'd continue to make more calls because they knew more about what they were seeing? Yeah. So some of the information that we got was super actionable. I can remember a time where we actually rescued a couple of victims. I remember one time a um, a trucker heard a bunch of CB chatter and he was near a truck stop. So he pulls into the truck stop and he went and told somebody working at the truck stop and said, hey, I was just out on the road five minutes ago and I just heard them talking about, hey, I've got a girl here if somebody is interested. I don't know where the girl is, but they said she's somewhere at this truck stop. So that person from the truck stop immediately called us and we kind of sent people there. We never found that girl. But the point of that was a trucker heard that on the CB, wheeled into the truck stop, told someone at the truck stop. The truck stop then knew who to call, called somebody, and there were two troopers that went there and they searched the parking lot. And maybe next time they actually rescue a girl or a boy or make an arrest. So that's what we want. And it's not always going to work out perfect. Sometimes it's not going to work out at all. But even if it just works out one out of every 10 calls and you rescue somebody, how much is that worth? You've really changed and impacted somebody's life. And in maybe a, a, in maybe certain instances, you've literally saved someone's life. And I want to actually press you on it again, because I think it's so important to hear, Um, you know, sometimes folks will say to us, well, I don't want to be wrong. You know, I don't want to inconvenience law enforcement. They're busy. I just, you know, I, I might be seeing something, but I don't have hard evidence of what's happening. What would you say to those folks? Do you want them to make that call? Absolutely. If somebody is a possible human trafficking victim, that's a big deal. And just like we learned after 9-11, you know, the old saying, if you see something, say something, because you never know when that one little piece of information is going to stop a terrorist attack. You never know when that one little piece of information is going to save a child or going to save an adult from being trafficked for the next two years or save someone from cutting their wrist in a bathtub in a rent-by-the-week hotel or overdose or whatever other horrible things can happen. So we would way rather you call us 10 times and have nine of those be nothing and then have that 10th one be something super actionable that we can rescue somebody from. Yes, absolutely. So you started seeing this increase in calls and tips, you know, based on your experience of getting those tips from the truck stops, what are some of the signs that drivers should be looking for over the road at the truck stops at rest areas um, and make that call? Well, obviously the most clear cut thing, and I think a lot of truck drivers have seen this, there's always girls work in the parking lot. There's always girls that are going in and out of truckers, trucks, and the truck stop. If you see 
what you believe is prostitution activity going on at the truck stop, then that's kind of a no-brainer that we want you to call us. If you hear stuff on the CB where you have someone that is basically offering to engage in some type of prostitution, and then sometimes when you just see someone that maybe just looks a little out of place, something is not super right. So maybe you see an older male with a much, much younger female, something just doesn't look right in their body language and the way they're interacting. Or maybe, you know, he's taking her by the arm. She's not looking at anybody um, in the eye. She's got her head down looking at the ground. There was an actual rescue that took place in Idaho, but it was of a child that was with someone who was exploiting her. There was actual video footage of them engaging at the convenience store. And the little girl had her arms crossed and she wouldn't look at him. And he was obviously kind of controlling her in and out of the convenience store. Now, could that just be that this is her, a father and she wants a donut and she's not getting a donut because they're going to grandma's house to have dinner or something? What if it's not that? And in this case, that's exactly what it was. Nobody from the convenience store called, but they left to the convenience store and went to a Denny's and the waitress noticed something's not right. The waitress calls the little girl got rescued. She was nine years old. We would way rather you call us and it'd be nothing than not call us and let somebody go down the road that is a victim. Absolutely. We always say, you know, better to be wrong than to never call at all. And somebody continue to have to endure a life of sexual slavery, you know, or labor slavery. So I know you did some targeted undercover operations as a result of building those relationships with the truck stops and even some local law enforcement partners. Can you just give us a little bit of a snapshot of what happened in those undercover operations and some of the successes that came out of it? So we obviously do targeted, and by we, I'm talking law enforcement, does targeted operations at a variety of different things. So hotels, casinos, truck stops, you know, things of that nature. So during the time of COVID, truckers were essential. So truck stops were essential. So what we saw was these traffickers are not going to just stop making money. So they started forcing these girls to work at truck stops more because they couldn't do some of the other places that they would normally work. So we started targeting truck stops. And because of these relationships that we had built, we had numerous truck stops that were like, hey, come here, do it here. We're perfectly cool with that. We do not want that at our business. We want to help these girls. And from those truck stop operations, we were averaging somewhere around in that eight to 10 victims contacted per operation. And then we would inevitably probably arrest anywhere from one to three folks that were involved in some type of promoting prostitution, trafficking, exploitation, something like that. And we do not arrest these girls or boys. Most of the research is very, very consistent that these are all victims. I personally have never interviewed a survivor. Um, I'm sure there's some out there, but I have personally never interviewed a survivor that this does not start for them usually as a child somewhere, either sexually abused as a child, physically abused as a child, all the other stuff that they go through. So they have probably been a victim numerous times throughout their life, maybe as a child, maybe as a teenager, and then on and on and on, maybe into adulthood, they've been victims multiple times or, or constantly throughout this time. So we do not arrest. We actually have victim advocates that we take with us on these operations. They are side by side with law enforcement. As soon as we contact that girl and everything is safe, then 
the detective that's assigned to that particular individual along with that victim advocate, they stay with that victim throughout the entire process. We're here to help you. We're here to rescue you. We're here to provide you services. And we immediately start providing the basic stuff like food, water, all those kinds of things. And then we have medical services there. And generally, I would say about 90% of the girls will accept medical services of some kind. Some of them won't, but a majority of them do because generally their traffickers are not allowing them to have the medical services that they really need. And in the lifestyle that they are in, they need medical services. We also have um, shelters, both short-term shelters that we can take them to, and then we'll have people there that can provide long-term shelters. We also have places that we can send them for rehab, for drug rehab, and things like that to get them sober and get them clean, counseling, so that we can make a plan right then that night while we have them there, and then work with them over the next weeks and months and maybe years until they can get completely out of this and become totally functioning you know, members of society that to do whatever they want to do, follow whatever dreams that they have. Yeah. And the trafficker is saying, you can't trust law enforcement. They're just going to arrest you. They're just going to use you. And then law enforcement does exactly what they say. It makes the trafficker out to be telling the truth. And the trafficker then becomes the one that can get them out of jail. And it just continues that cycle of dependency. Whereas what you're doing is breaking that and saying, no, we we actually are here for you for the long haul. We do care. We're not interested in getting arrests or booking you. There are some resources if you want. And I think that's important, right? Is not making it contingent. Their participation in the services, what allows them to not get arrested, because that would just be re-exploitation again. And like you said, here's what we can offer. Here's what's available, but this is up to you, right? Giving that power back to them. I think that's so important. One of the things that I tell law enforcement all the time when we're teaching them is, so you're sitting in a room with them because the big complaint law enforcement will give you is, well, these girls don't disclose. And and that's accurate. About 10% disclosure rate across the nation. We've come up with a way that can increase that to 50 to 60%. But still, that's still not perfect. We're still trying to improve that. But at 10%, they're, they're saying, well, well, they're not disclosing. So I don't know if they're a victim or not. And well, yes, they are. Research shows that they probably all are. And I explained to the law enforcement officers, the trafficker is saying, go out here and make this money and do this, or this is going to happen. And we're saying, tell me all these things, or this is going to happen. It's no different. Why would they trust you? And you're right. They've already been brainwashed that the police are bad. So we're not doing any of that. And if they want to walk away, they walk away. What we see is around 60 to 70% of these girls will accept some services. Sometimes they'll just want medical. Sometimes they'll want shelter. Sometimes they'll want counseling. Sometimes they'll want rehab. And then what happens is what we refer to as the special victims methodology perspective. Over the course of the next month, two months, they've met with us four, five, six times. So they're starting to trust the police. They're starting to build a rapport with us. And they're also getting sober now. They're getting clean. They're seeing a counselor. They're doing all these things. And then what we see is that they then will tell you who their trafficker is because they want out. They're just doing a, a really a cost benefit and analysis. Where do I get hurt the least and who can I trust? Is it going to be the trafficker? Is it going to be the victim advocate? Is it going to be law enforcement? It's all a cost benefit analysis for them because that's the world they live in, right? Even when they go see a John, is this the John that's going to cut me with a box cutter or is this the John that is going to be nice to me? Everything is a cost benefit analysis for them. Everything is survival mode for them. 
Wow. Dan, incredible work. We're so grateful that you're out there training law enforcement on that victim methodology, on building that relationship and it coming from a genuine place of really wanting the best for these individuals and wanting to help create that pathway out. So what are you up to these days and are there any resources that you want the audience to be aware of? Myself and my partner in law enforcement at the time, we are both now in the private world and we developed something called the Human Trafficking Training Center. And we provide training and consulting in the human trafficking arena to law enforcement, the community, to medical personnel, casino folks, a broad spectrum of people. And we develop these classes over all of our years of, of working that we think are really victim-centered, top-notch training. We've seen that it works, that it pays dividends. We've taken it to multiple states and then we train law enforcement. And once we leave, we start seeing law enforcement rescuing people and law enforcement doing this kind of work. You know, you don't know what you don't know. Our goal now is to try to make that paradigm shift, whether it's law enforcement or medical personnel or truck drivers or plumbers or electricians or doesn't matter. If you see something, say something and recognize that those girls that you see on the corner working the boulevard or at a truck stop or at a hotel, they're all victims. I just tell people, think of them and treat them as though they were your daughter your sister, your niece, your son, your nephew, and how would you want them treated? And if we can all do that, we can win this human trafficking thing. But it's going to take all of us. It takes a community. So thank you for Truckers Against Trafficking for doing what you're doing, for having these podcasts and doing all the great work that you're doing and to all the truckers out there that are keeping their eyes peeled and reporting stuff because you really can save somebody's life. Thank you so much, Dan. And we will include resources to your organization in the show notes so that if people want to follow up and learn more about the training that you guys offer, they can do that. Thank you. And as Dan said, in order to truly make a difference in this work, it will take all of us. Truck stop employees, bus drivers, truck drivers, advocates, moms and dads, law enforcement officers, all lending their expertise, working together and keeping the victim's best interest at heart. If you're listening today, and you are a driver, remember that something you see could lead to a new opportunity, a new start to life for an individual. In this episode, it's clear how much truck stop employees see and how they can truly make a difference. TAT has training materials for truck stop employees as well as for law enforcement officers. If you want to access any of these materials to hand out at truck stops you go through, you can write us at tat.truckers at gmail.com and we'll send those materials to you free of charge. For all the drivers out there on the roads, please always remember that the first step in victims road to recovery is the opportunity to leave. And that just might come through you making a call on their behalf, reporting what you are seeing to the national human trafficking or local law enforcement. And that is how you are driving freedom. 